0: I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome my guest, Mr. Adam Alexander. He has spent 40 years as an award-winning film and television producer, but his true passion is collecting rare, endangered, but above all, delicious vegetables from around the world. He lectures widely on his work discovering and conserving rare endangered garden crops. He is a board member of the national charity Garden Organic, and his knowledge and expertise on growing out vegetables for seed is highly valued by the Heritage Seed Library, for which he is a seed guardian. Mr. Alexander shares seeds with other growers and gene banks in the U.S., Canada, and the EU, and he is currently growing out seed of heritage Syrian vegetables to be returned to the Middle East as part of a program to revive traditional horticulture. We're going to be talking about his new terrific book, The Seed Detective, Uncovering the Secret Histories of Remarkable Vegetables, which was published in 2022 by Chelsea Green. Welcome, Mr. Alexander.
1: Hi. Call me Adam, please. All right.
0: Thank you. I fell in love with your book for so many reasons, but I want to back up. Before you got to seed saving and gardening, tell me a little bit about your film and television production work. What were you covering exactly?
1: Well, I've worked in all areas of film and television, and I've made movies and commercials and documentaries and all things in between over the years. But my real interest has always been in anthropological filmmaking. I'm interested in getting under the skins of communities and societies that uh, I'm working with local filmmakers and indigenous filmmakers to have them tell their stories and then you know, put them together in a way that makes them accessible to people all over the world to watch. And so I, I've had some success with that over the years. And up until, really it was at the end of the '90s, I'd, I mean, I've been growing vegetables all my life, but I'd never really connected those seeds that I sowed in the garden with the cultures and the places and the peoples that were associated or connected. To those particular crops. And at the, the end of the 90s, I was in Donetsk, of all places, which then was a crumbling steel town. You know, the Soviet Union was falling apart, everything was going to hell. But there were various issues that were going on in the hotel. And I had to effectively find a way to feed the crew. And I came across in the market this um, pepper, a sweet pepper. And the interesting thing about peppers is that they form a very, very important part of not just Ukrainian food culture, but food cultures right across Eastern and Central Europe. You only have to think about Hungary and Russia, particularly, and Poland and how important the pepper is to them. But I hadn't really connected them at that point in time. But when I brought this pepper back into the kitchen, It was just amazing. It was not only sweet, but it had a lovely, fiery bite to it. It was fruity. And I just thought to myself, I wonder if I can save some seeds and bring them home and grow them. And I did. I brought them back and I've been growing them ever since. And that was what got me thinking differently about vegetables. And then I was able to use the opportunities I had as a filmmaker, making principally ethnographic films all over the world to whenever I was traveling, actually spend more time in farmers markets or city markets and meeting gardeners and growers to discover what it was that they were growing and what mattered to them and let other people get on with making the films. You should know that a producer is someone who gets everybody else to do the work, which is kind <laughs> of important. So right. that was kind of the world I was in yeah. for the last 40 years.
0: Well, it opened up a whole new career and lucky we are for that. I want to go to a Syrian cafe with you for a moment because your experience there was quite remarkable compared to my own experience here in the States. So you go into a cafe in Syria, you are served delicious fava beans and you ask the server where the beans came from and he
1: knew yeah, well, he certainly did. It's, uh, he was the chef. And I asked the question because I ask it constantly on my travels. When I come across something that is delicious and of that food culture, the first question I ask is, where does it come from? And if I'm lucky, as I was in this case, the person says, well, I grew it. Or I know who grew it. Or it comes from a particular place. And in this instance, the chef said, well, I grow these on my farm. And that really got me interested because apart from the fact that this fava bean is very big, it's as large as my thumb. And also a bean that, you know, I ate it as a salad and that's unusual, but it was unusual because of its size. And I know, you know, fava beans are some of the oldest cultivated crops in the world. We've been growing fava beans for at least for 8,000 years, maybe longer and they are one of the sort of key founder crops of what we call the fertile crescent which is essentially the eastern part of the middle east and so i knew that i was in a part of the world being in at that point in the ancient city of palmyra so i was right in the heart of the fertile crescent and when he said oh i've been growing them And then I asked the next question was, well, how long have you been growing them? And his family had been growing them. They've been grown in Palmyra for generations. I also knew that one of the earliest, in fact, the earliest archaeological discovery of fava beans in Syria was in a place that was now several hundred feet underwater in Lake Assad. And Lake Assad, they built a dam in the mid 70s. And before the waters of the the Tigris or the Euphrates, I can't remember which river it was, filled it up, they did some excavations and found these fava beans that were about four and a half thousand years old. They're not the oldest in the Middle East. The oldest, I think, were found in Israel at a really important archaeological site, about six and a half thousand years old. Anyway, you know, Lake Assad is just up the road from Palmyra, you know, no real distance. And of course, back then four and a half thousand years ago the country was very different it was much more verdant. it was more populated and you had this huge diversity of crops and so i did think to myself i wonder how closely related that fava bean that i'd had in my salad was to those original very early domesticated beans and when you look at the bean Apart from the fact that it's great size, which is very unusual for a fava bean, you are, there are only two, three, sometimes four beans in a pod. They're very small. And one of the things about domestication, and it's one of the facts about domestication, which is why I sit at the feet of Neolithic farmers, who were the women and men who domesticated these crops through selecting the traits that they wanted to keep and carry on. So in the case of most crops, what they wanted was bigger seeds. And that's no different for the father bean. And they wanted more seeds in a pod. So when you today go and grow your father beans, you may get six, seven, eight beans in a pod. And that's the result of domestication and careful selection through breeding to get ever bigger pods. But when it's a short pod like that, that tells me it's very, very old. It's a very undeveloped form of the fava bean, but it's probably hugely genetically diverse. I mean, it grows so happily in my damp corner of Wales compared to the hyper arid conditions that you find in the middle of the Syrian desert. That tells you everything about its ability to grow and flourish in all sorts of different environments. And I think probably the oldest bean that I've got
0: Well, what was so remarkable to me about that story is that if I were to go into a restaurant here in the United States, if it wasn't a farm-to-table restaurant, and those kinds of restaurants are growing in popularity, but still they are not the norm. If I were to ask somebody where a particular item on my dish came from, I can almost guarantee you with certainty that they would look at me like I'm crazy and not know. They might have to go back and ask the chef, but in most cases, foods are coming from the Cisco truck. And so we've lost this reverence for the biodiverse cropping systems that used to be. And from a nutritionist perspective, When I see loss of biodiversity, I think not only have we lost the flavors that you so well describe in your book, but we've lost the access to these bioactive compounds that protect our health. And I think that we are truly in a crisis with regard to biodiversity loss. And you talk about that in your book.
1: I do. I mean, I think we are, but I'm also also a great optimist. And I see particularly amongst the younger generation of growers, this real determination to basically protect what we have, restore what we can, and to celebrate the diversity that is actually still there for us all to enjoy. I mean, it's, it's so true what you say about You know, you go into a restaurant, nobody knows where anything comes from. That's not the case of everything. I mean, if you've got a a piece of beef on the on the menu, it's possible that the waiter may know the breed of the animal. That's possible. And certainly when there's a slice of cheese, they will know what the type of cheese is uh, or they should do. The thing that really gets up my nose, and my poor wife suffers terribly when this event happens, but you go to a restaurant and there on the menu is the dreaded H word, heritage. So the other day I was in a restaurant and on the menu was heritage beetroot. And so I asked the poor waiter, oh, you've got heritage beetroot on the menu. What's the variety? What's it called? And this poor guy, he said, I don't know. Excuse me, I'll go and ask the chef. And he came back and he said, the chef doesn't know it was just what was delivered as heritage beetroot. And the whole thing about heritage foods and vegetables and fruits is they aren't heritage unless they have a name, unless they have a they have their own personality and character. And so what is happening is that obviously wholesalers and big commercial growers and especially plant breeders, have hijacked this term. So you'll go into the supermarket and there will be heritage carrots for sale in amongst all the vegetables. And they're called heritage because they may be white or purple or not orange. But that is the extent of it. They're almost certainly modern hybrid cultivars. And just because they don't look like a regular carrot, they're called heritage as if somehow that adds some special quality to them whereas you and I know that if you go to the farmer's market and you are getting carrots from a farmer, they know the name of the variety they put in the ground and they're growing it because actually it tastes good. They like it. Their customers like it. And so we have to find the whatever ways we can back into that world, which was one, I certainly, you know, I'm no spring chicken. You know, it was like that when I was a kid growing up, I was surrounded by vegetable growers. And uh, we knew everything that we were eating. And certainly my parents, my grandparents were intimately acquainted with the culture of their local varieties.
0: Mm. Adam, let me take one quick break because we are halfway through and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Mr. Adam Alexander. He is the author of a terrific book. It's titled The Seed Detective, Uncovering the Secret Histories of Remarkable Vegetables. It was published in 2022 by Chelsea Green. Well, Adam, I am so grateful that you feel hopeful. I read in your book that we have lost 90% of all varieties of fruits and vegetables in the last century. How did that happen?
1: Uh, Gosh, there are a number of reasons why it happened. And it's to do in part with the consolidation of seed production. So up until really until the sort of the middle of the 20th century, we had a very large number of local seed producers. And I'm not talking just about vegetables. This would have been grain and corn. If you were a farmer, you would be buying your wheat seed from a seed merchant who would almost certainly bought their seed From a nearby grower and this was the same with vegetables you had these big horticultural businesses that were producing seed on a very local scale but you started to get consolidation and you had big companies as much in the us as in the uk who started to hoover up these small companies you know this is capitalism at work And they just wanted to be able to get bigger and monopolize. And of course, what they wanted to do was to get rid of the competition. So the last thing you wanted was your competitors' really nice pea to be in the catalog, when actually what you really wanted to do was to sell your pea to the unsuspecting public. So when you think that at the end of the 19th century, there were over a thousand varieties of pea Named in America. Now, they weren't all different, but it tells you there were a lot of peas being grown right across the country. Today, there are a handful of peas you look in a catalogue. And that is the result of this consolidation and this need to actually limit the choice of consumers in terms of the different varieties they could buy. Then the other thing that's really got in the way of it is the it seems to me the prevalence of modern f1 hybrids in catalogs so I don't have a particular problem with people wanting to grow f1 hybrids I mean I do grow a few myself because some of them are really really good and they're delicious vegetables but the problem with them is you can't save the seeds they won't come back true you can play around with hybrid seeds but it's It's something that, you know, a few of us will work on F2s, F3s. I mean, it's all very technical. And the truth is, you never really end up with a particularly good result. So as a result of that, people, they buy modern hybrids for a great deal of money. They're very, very expensive. And of course, they can't save the seeds. So even if you had old varieties, you stop growing them. And they just go out of use and the seeds lose their potency and viability. And that's how they go. And I think the other thing is our changing eating habits. You know, our diet has changed because we just have got out of the habit of eating fresh produce. And, you know, whether that's McDonald's to blame or I, I don't know. But that's the other thing that's happened is. Our taste in food has gone. And also, this desire for bland. If you think about broccoli, I grow traditional varieties of broccoli that have a, they are bitter. They have this sharp flavor to them. And the bitterness is the antioxidants that are in the broccoli that are there actually to defend them against herbivores. But these antioxidants are really, well, you know, you're a nutritionist, they're so important for our health. But That's people right. want bland. So, The seed producers develop new cultivars that are genetically narrower and they breed out these bitter traits so that the public eats something that is basically tasteless, not particularly healthy, but the company can sell lots of seeds. And the final thing I would say is that we used to live in a world of food which was driven by producers. We are now, and so it was broad and flat. Wherever you traveled, there were local growers and local producers of meat and cheese, everything that we ate and drank. But with the likes of these huge new uh, multinationals, we're in what we call a vertically integrated system where they create seeds that only they can sell, that you cannot reproduce yourself as a farmer and that are dependent on a suite of chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides to keep them alive. And you can only get those from those companies. So we have trapped ourselves in this vertically integrated system, which is what is destroying our soil and having such a negative effect on the planet. And the only way you break, well, there are two things that are gonna change that. First of all, it's an unsustainable business model. In the end, the soil becomes so denuded of any value that there's the law of diminishing returns. And we're already seeing it in the UK that actually regenerative farmers are more productive than the most productive chemical farmers. And once a farmer sees across his neighbor's field that actually doing it differently is more productive and makes him more money, he will change or she will change the way she farms. And then you say, farewell, bear, farewell, Monsanto, go to the hell that you deserve to belong in for the world that you've created.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that because I live in the Midwest, I see a lot of monocultures, And what's happened with the increasing numbers of herbicide sprays is that farmers who are trying to grow the kinds of biodiverse crops that you have described (coughs) so beautifully in your book, those farmers are losing the ability to grow those nourishing diverse crops because of herbicide drift. So I appreciate your optimism. I think that your book is the start of truly what could be a revolution in moving the dial towards a more biodiverse, less chemically intensive system, I also have a sense of urgency because of climate change, where we so desperately need biodiversity in order to restore resilience in our food system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, listen, we have big, big challenges facing us. But I'm a storyteller. That's my background, telling stories. And I know that that's what people want to hear. They love stories. And actually, they love stories about food, particularly. And so it's about winning hearts and minds. And to me, those people who have never thought about peas other than something that you get from the freezer cabinet in the supermarket, once you start to open a door for them, into a story about a food that they could actually try, which is local to them, which becomes part of their identity, then actually, things really change. Suddenly, they start to think differently. And I see this myself, working with reintroducing local varieties into communities, actually, communities, they want to buy local varieties, they want to buy Welsh vegetables in Wales, in the same ways they want to buy Welsh lamb and Welsh cheese. And I think, we just need to exploit our own very human desires and curiosity through intriguing them with tales and then delivering to them really, really delicious, good quality food. Because you know that when you go into the garden and you pick a, a pea pod straight from the vine and pop those things into your mouth, it's just like, Wow why would you want to eat anything else any other way? It's like, you know, lifting the carrot, wiping it on the seat of your pants and biting into it. You know, I do that with kids who never eat carrots. And then all they want to do is eat carrots. So that's the way to go.
0: I agree. Having people taste it is absolutely the first step, but also protecting the biodiversity and bringing the biodiversity back. And I want to I want to talk about your ability to move seeds around because you're very interesting in that you're able to collect foods and then seeds and bring them back to the UK. Are there restrictions on transferring seeds and plant material throughout the countries?
1: There are. I mean, one of the real problems and challenges that we have is moving genetic material around. And it's gotten a whole lot more difficult lots of reasons of which many of them are highly justified so we have something you know brexit i don't know you've heard about it where we (laughs) left the eu well when back in the day when we were actually part of europe i could move seeds freely around the whole of the eu there were the sort of the big businesses in europe hated the idea of people sharing seeds so You could grow and share seeds, but you couldn't sell them unless you were registered and they were on the list and blah, 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 blah. But the truth is thousands of us just took no notice and ignored it. And to be fair to governments, they've got more important things to think about than a bunch of people like me all over Europe sharing seeds. And actually, the law has now changed. I can't even send seeds or receive seeds from Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. Well... When the law is an ass, you treat it as an ass. And uh, dare I say this, my late mother, God rest her soul, said to me, Adam, remember, if they're going to treat you like a criminal, behave like one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, but actually, to be honest, I don't bring back seeds in the way that I did in the past, partly because, yes, I started by bringing things back because they were delicious and there are occasions and there are plenty of occasions in the book stories in the book where really if I hadn't found them they would be gone and so I make no apology for bringing seeds back that are in serious danger of being lost forever and then growing them out and then returning them and that's very very important to me and I think the other thing is that There are laws in place rightly to stop the likes of the Monsantas of this world from acquiring local varieties, which they then use to develop their hybrid cultivars and their genetically modified crops. And there is no benefit to those societies and communities to whom those original vegetables were an intrinsic part of their world. And that has had to stop and is now completely illegal. But I think that. The rule I have is very simple, is I never take seeds from anybody. I will ask for seeds and sometimes people won't give them to me and that's fine. That is, I completely respect their desire not to share seeds. But otherwise I ask for them or more often than not, people just offer them to me. And I always, when I can, return seeds. So that it completes this really important cycle, which is particularly for growers. You know, when you grow food Once you start to save the seeds and share them, you are connecting yourself back 12,000 years to those Neolithic farmers who started this whole crazy thing going on.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it is beautiful. Your book has chapters devoted to different crops, and we didn't have time to dive into those. I'd (laughs) love for you to come back in the spring and whet our appetites and inspire us. But I think that one of the most important things that you speak about in this book that is a constant theme is that there needs to be a pride reinstated about our food and you give credit to the early farmers who were doing the earliest plant breeding and i i want to thank you for this beautiful book and for all of your work
1: well thank you very much i'm very touched
0: well, we have to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Adam Alexander. He is an award-winning film and television producer, but his true passion is collecting rare endangered but above all delicious vegetables from around the world he is known as a seed guardian and his new book titled the seed detective uncovering the secret histories of remarkable vegetables published in 2022 by chelsea green is a perfect place to start maybe spending winter nights trying to figure out what you might want to grow in the spring and just having a new and reborn reverence for our food and the seeds from which it comes. Mr. Alexander, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure, Melinda.